When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Cannonball is part of the Agora Podcast Network. If you enjoy our show, then be sure to check out some of the others on the network, like The History of England, a chronological walkthrough, well, The History of England. This isn't a dry, events-only podcast, but one that takes its time to meander through the customs and cultures that make the history of the UK funny, if not fascinating. For more information on the show, check out thehistoryofengland.co.uk, and for more information on the shows on the network, go to agorapodcast.com. Network.com. And if you want more of The Cannonball, check out our blog at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.blog. You'll see our occasional scribblings on canonical things, as well as the order in which we're tackling the canon. You can also find us on Twitter at CannonballPod, or on Facebook if you look for our group. Rate and review on iTunes. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. My name is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me is my co-host, Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing? Hey, uh, very good. I am doing much better than the last time we attempted to <laughs> record this episode. <laughs> so, uh, folks, to, to, to get a little peek behind the curtain here, um, this is our actually our second attempt at uh, talking about the... The, the book, the third book of Montaigne's essays, the, the last of them, we're rounding out Montaigne. Um, and earlier in the week, uh, Claude and I were both coming off of some head colds. Um, the, the, the technical gods were not in our favor. We, we recorded, we limped along and we recorded, we still recorded a solid hour's worth of material where we got excited and we talked about stuff, but it, it just ended up being totally unusable. So we're, we're back because you know what? The, because the listeners, Claude, the listeners deserve the very best that we can muster. Well, so. You know, it, 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 it was a, a combination of lack of sleep on my part and uh, lack of technical, I guess, facility. And you had some brilliant stuff to say on the French civil wars of religion that I couldn't hear. 
<laughs> yeah, I was really, I really, I really got into my zone too. I was like, I would go on for like two or three minutes, and then be like, "Hey, Claude, um, did you actually get any of that?" Or am I, you know? And then he'd be like, "Oh yeah, no, I, I get you cut out like two minutes ago." So, so that, that was this is our attempt to to recapture that magic and actually, I think, generate some actual new magic because we've had some more yeah. time to chew on stuff. We've had some more time to to reflect on the text to think about the things that we actually wanted to talk about. So I, I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm ready to jump in, man. So we read all of book three, but figured that it would be the best and easiest to focus on three particular essays that are sort of the the standalones of that book. Uh, the essay on Virgil, the essay on physiognomy, and the essay on experience. Um, okay, the essay on Virgil is about anything but Virgil. Uh, <laughs> Montaigne takes as his starting point a couple of lines. I, I mean, that's sort of what it is, uh, an essay on a couple of lines of Virgil. But particularly, he's picking on a couple of the ways that Virgil depicts marriage among the gods. Mm -hmm. uh, his problem with the way Virgil writes about it is that, well, I, I guess it comes closer to an idealized version of marriage, which involves sexual desire and partnership. Okay. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. The second essay on physiognomy uh, has to do with the way people look, but it's it's fascinating because it's at least from my read of this whole way through, mm -hmm. it's the closest Montaigne comes to really addressing the political fractures of his day. Right, the, like the, he, like he, I'm sure he must have written. He must have written about this, you know, the the actual political situation in his life and times, and you know, some other works, or certainly in diplomatic letters that he would have been sending back and forth. But this is really the, the only of the essays that really that he couldn't he, that he couldn't not talk about it. When he's, yeah, yeah, and it, it it's really fascinating for what it says about a state of political chaos. Uh, to, I guess to be as human as possible, I found it comforting. Yeah, uh, to 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 think about another person experiencing a moment where it looked as if the nation state, or or the certainties of the nation state, or the certainties that he'd grown up with, were about to be just utterly demolished. Yeah. There was something in that that was a little bit comforting. How does one stare down the disintegration of a social order? Yeah. Um, I don't think it was necessarily – I don't think it's necessarily the view that I would endorse. But there was something admirable about – certain of the claims that he made. Yeah. And then uh, we're going to get to on experience, which is the foundation for both Emerson and Nietzsche. Uh, the, the, the epistemology that he lays out is what becomes it, – it, it, it's what I just said. It's the foundation for Emerson and Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, for both of them. It's – 
it's ironic because both of those two later writers were so intent on expressing the individuality of the writer mm-hmm. and both of them are blatantly ripping off Montaigne. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, it's astounding to me how yeah. close Emerson who had this intense anxiety about being original sounds to Montaigne and that's what I think is fascinating about Montaigne by the end is I really do feel like I, – I don't know if this is accurate at all because there's so much – there's a field of of distortion between actual person and text. Mm-hmm. And there's a field of distortion between um, – Readership and text. There, there are all these different ways to get out that get at this, but I, I really do feel like by the end of the very last essay, Montaigne kind of didn't care. He cared about how he would be viewed. He cared. Uh, I mean, this is all a, a construct. He. I mean, the essays, the persona that he developed, it's all a construct. He cared to an extent about how it would be viewed, but there's something that he sort of lets go of to say, look, let's let's just really address what it means to be human. Let's really just sort of address all of these complicated things that humanity means. And break it down, think about it, work through it, accept it. And I don't think he had the anxiety about individuality that Emerson had to an intense degree and that Nietzsche had to an even more intense degree. <laughs> right. a, a, I don't, a full neurosis of individuality when it comes to Nietzsche, I, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think Montaigne is just sort of like, hey, here's what I think it is to be. Mm-hmm. Let me lay it out on the table. Let's take it and, and move with it. And then Emerson and then Montaigne and, and, and then Nietzsche after him just took that as something much more anxious. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't feel a kind of anxiety over personality in in Montaigne. In fact, I feel the opposite. Right. Um, well, he's, it's, it's, I was going to say, like, as, you know, as, as Emerson has this anxiety about individuality and, and whatnot, it, it seems Montaigne is, he's, he's blasé about <laughs> whatever individuality uh you know emerges in these uh in these essays and and you know part of part of me might have to think that for those later writers of course they are as much as Montaigne is conscientious of the fact that he is in conversation with writers who came before him and if, I mean you know you read the essays and it's chock full of this humanist citation of the classics everywhere that's his whole his whole shtick this whole entire time has been, I'm going to be in dialogue with the classics and it's going to take me off in these little directions and here you go. Um, but I think perhaps your later thinkers like Emerson and Nietzsche were more self-conscious about the fact that they were – they were self-conscious about being in conversation with people who discovered an individuality themselves, I guess. Yeah, and OK, I'll – there's something else in Montaigne that um, that recognizes the unknowability of individuality. Mm-hmm. 
Like the, there's something in Montaigne that that recognizes that your actual true self is to some capacity um, unknowable. That part of what he's doing is laying out this whole project to be able to say, "Oh, so here's who I am," mm-hmm. and he keeps surprising himself by. Who he is. All right. I, I'm going to read a message that was sent to me by uh, a friend of mine who I, I want to pimp for, for five minutes. Um, Art Zillarulo, uh, Arturo Zillarulo. Um, if anybody is interested at all in contemporary poetry, please look this guy up. His last name is spelled Z-I-L-L-E-R-U-E-L-O, and I'm doing my damnedest to try to talk him into maybe coming on and talking to us about romanticism. Uh, he's a colleague of mine from grad school, and he's a poet himself. He's written a book that is frustratingly good. Um, yeah. it's, it's irritatingly good because, uh, he, he wrote a book of poems that it, it annoys me how good it is. Uh, but he, <laughs> he, but he wrote, uh, he, he likes our podcast and he's been talking to me back and forth and he wrote me a message, uh, that, that points out, um, the uncanny weirdness of Montaigne talking about his mind. Art says, I think my favorite of his images is from the essay on idleness when he describes his mind as a runaway horse that gives birth to chimeras. The mind beholding itself and acknowledging its inability to know and control all its dis- disparate parts is genuinely scary. Uh, Art's right, uh, but he's also... He's also wrong. Well, not wrong, but there's also this sense that it's fascinating that the mind is this thing that that when you sort of let it loose, you can't control it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another sort of fascinating aspect of Montaigne. This is all, you know, I don't think we talked about it uh, uh, about this, but the way he's considering the essay is in that French sense of essay, like. It's not just this long, boring thing that you write for Dr. Guzer when uh, he's teaching you your stupid uh, English 110 class. Right. It's, it's an attempt. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an a, essay. It's a it's, sally it's, forth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's this way in which it's a sally forth not just to let loose all of your thoughts and opinions, but to actually know who and what you are. Um. So, to get back to the third book, what does Montaigne know about marriage? <laughs> um, well, it's not terrible, is the thing. <laughs> um, and and it's and it's and I I have a kind of uh, so yeah. And this is this is the uh, on some lines of Virgil uh, essay that you know Claude mentioned earlier. He's he's, he's taking as a as a taking off point. This uh, Virgil's description of like the the perfect, uh, you know, marriage between God beings or whatever, and and that it is, in in Virgil's telling, it is it is chock full of eros, you know, it it is a it is it is rapturous, uh, romantic abandon, um, and Montaigne's like, yeah, you know, wait a minute, 
<laughs> but I, yeah. I, I have a, you know, through, through my, you know, I have, I have a different take on this. And uh, there's a particular uh, paragraph that I think, you know, sums it up pretty well, as, as well as you can sum up anything in Montaigne. Um, what he says here, a good marriage, if there be any such, uh, am I right, fellas? Okay. Uh, a good marriage, if there be any such, rejects the company and the conditions of love and tries to represent those of friendship. Tis a sweet society of life, full of constancy, trust, and an infinite number of useful and solid services and mutual obligations, which any woman who has, uh, who has a right taste would be loath to serve her husband in quality of a mistress. If she be lodged in his affection as a wife, she is more honorably and securely placed. When he purports to be in love with another, and works all he can to obtain his desire, let any one but ask him, on which he had rather a disgrace should fall, his wife or his mistress? Which of their misfortunes would most afflict him, and to which of them he wishes the most grandeur? The answer to these questions is out of dispute in a sound marriage. So he's... Montaigne there is postulating this, and again, we have to, you know, reflect on the fact that he's talking about marriage from the standpoint of a kind of uh, middle-ranking aristocrat of the 16th century in France, um, which is a social milieu very, I, I would say, uh, very alien to my own. I can't, I can't speak for uh, Claude, but <laughs> but at the same time, I think I think he's hitting upon something because what he's, I think it's interesting that what he's hit upon is kind of what we might it's kind of like half of the sort of modern day ideal companionate marriage isn't it he's yeah. he's, he's he's postulating this sort of this union based on reciprocal trust and support more than eros yeah and he's got this idea that um it, okay in one of the earlier essays that i think we briefly touched on on friendship, he's describing his friendship with Etienne, the the poet who died, and that was sort of like this intense friendship, which was in many ways coming close to an eroticization, but then gets de-eroticized. And there seems to be this de-eroticized version of marriage that's much more pragmatic that he has in mind. It's weird because it, it, it views marriage not exactly as a mercenary position, mm-hmm. but with some of the considerations that an idealization wouldn't take into account. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you're right. It's not the strictly – mercenary arrangement which you know uh would not have been uncommon um you know the the what that's of course the our classical understanding of the aristocratic marriage as a kind of a tool of uh estate management <laughs> essentially yeah um, that's that's what it was yeah and so it's not so it's not as strictly mercenary as that it's practical but also i, I think what's interesting i think what's most interesting is that it uh, I think it sort of centers around, and I and I don't know enough of my French to know just what kind of shades of meaning there are in the differences between the words love and friendship. Because yeah. what he, because you know, you'll know in, in you know in the Latin and the Romance languages, you know, words for friendships, you know, like, of course in French would be like ami or whatever, but you know, amicable, uh, amiable things like that. Those are those are etymologically related to the words for love, and it would not have been uncommon to talk about love between friends and things like that. I think what he's getting at is more like there's still a, a love element. It's just not that the, the erotic 
element of love is not the ascendant here. It is this kind of this this yeah this companionate love, and you know to which would be I'm, I mean I he doesn't really he doesn't say anything about a neurotic component to this ideal marriage, um, which is I think where he differs from. I guess what sort of the modern conception of the ideal marriage is where the, the, the people engaged in it are each other's, you know, primary you know, focus of those kinds of, I, I don't know quite how to put libidinal yeah. <laughs> sort of, sort of attitudes. Um, but he does, I, I think, how did I put it? I think he's, he's hit upon though, this kind of, um, <laughs> he's hit upon the idea of the, uh, of the companionate woke polyamorous, marriage like open marriage yeah that yeah and okay it's (laughs) all right this is to go somewhere stupid to come back to somewhere um i suppose a little bit more intellectual but not really but the uh in in the venture brothers do you know the venture brothers i do cartoon yeah uh i i really have an affection for the venture brothers i think it was made literally just for me <laughs> i i am the only person on earth to get 99.9 percent of the jokes and references uh but in one of the in one of the commentaries yeah i'm a dork uh but in one of the commentaries <laughs> they mention that uh one of the like the main super villain uh is uh the the backstory they came up for him was he has an open relationship with his wife but she has all these affairs on the side and he can't uh manage to get one right um that's okay uh that's that's sort of the 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 silliness that that comes up with a sort of like uh i guess angst open marriage where there's still this um what would you say commodification yeah i think Uh, a lot of this depends on the – I guess we're coming at this from a late capitalist version of thinking about economies, but there's this commodification of sex and sexuality that mm-hmm. views the woman at, or either the woman or certain kinds of sexual activities as commodities to be obtained or or, or somehow – yeah uh, somehow as part of some transaction yeah 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 and he's not exactly thinking about it like that mm-hmm. um one of the things that that i thought that i found sort of fascinating about this okay not fascinating from a 21st century perspective but fascinating that someone in his time would be thinking about this Mm -hmm. is his equality of all this. All right. Last episode, we were really sort of talking about Montaigne's problem or or, or the problems that we sort of had with some of the ways that he was interpreting no to mean yes. Mm -hmm. And I still find that extraordinarily problematic. I'm not going to back off of that. Um, I, I have a hard time cordoning that off as well that was just his time no it's still a pervasive discourse even today and it's a damaging discourse even today yeah uh but what i find kind of interesting about the the essay on virgil is the way that he really sort of 
addresses the double standards. Um, the the way that okay, he doesn't exactly back off of the 16th century idea that women want sex more than men. Yeah, that was. I guess that's something that is. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> that's sort of uh, opposite to a lot of the, I guess, what we might call traditional assumptions in our day and age, where it is the it is men who are presumed to be uncontrollably uh, uh, libidinal at all times, and it's up to women to resist them. Right. Uh, yeah. And he, he he still sort of carries that 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 chauvinism into or, or that stereotype into his writings, but what he does sort of admit to is the double standard there mm-hmm. that well men also want sex and go to all these sort of extremes to have this thing well wouldn't it be easier to just admit that sex and sexuality are a part of existence it's a part of being human it's fun uh Let's find a way to navigate this reasonably, carefully, so that nobody gets hurt, and that we all manage to maintain whatever human dignity we have. <laughs> right. We're, let's be frank and unembarrassed about this stuff, and just let's talk. Um, there, there's this way in which he's addressing this. It's not exactly on the level of equality, but it's acknowledging the hypocrisy on the part of men. And that's what I found really sort of fascinating about this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. By the way, uh, if I can help it, this is the very last time that I'm going to read one of these texts on a Kindle. Um, <laughs> I've got an iPad from school that they, they gave me for this class that I'm teaching, and it, it's the worst thing possible. Yeah. Uh, reading on a Kindle – all right. Let me break in with my own humanist um, – <laughs> Let's go Montaigne for a moment. My own <laughs> – analyses. Uh, and I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this, that reading on a Kindle is a completely different experience. When mm-hmm. you read in an actual book and underline an actual book and take notes in an actual book, there's a kind of spatial awareness that is extraordinarily different from reading online, mm-hmm. where everything seems to be endless. 
it, there's there's a kind of welcome finality to uh, an actual physical text. And the reason I ended up reading this on a Kindle is because uh, Montaigne's book is very, very heavy. Yes. <laughs> um, that's pretty much it. Uh, otherwise, I, I wouldn't be reading it like this. But uh, yeah, it's kind of terrible. And so I've got all these weird sort of underlines and highlights and notes. And I hate every minute of it because it, it, it's sort of endless. But um, anyway, I, I think I can find some of those moments where, where Montaigne is, is, is writing about either this hypocrisy or the the sort of expectations that are ridiculous. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go to something extraordinarily silly uh, first to come back. One of the, the, the things that he thinks is problematic about not talking bluntly uh, about sex and sexuality is that we get all kinds of um, – unrealistic expectations. And I know there are a lot of sex educators and sex positive people that were really troubled by Fifty Shades of Grey, not necessarily for the BDSM content, though they sort of objected to the way that the BDSM content was treated unrealistically, but also to the ways that sex in general were were treated unrealistically. Uh, I think... um, the, the protagonist, the main character, at the moment of penetration had her first orgasm. Uh, it was sort of like, yeah, well, let's, um, let's be, you know, a, a, a little, I guess, realistic <laughs> about this. Um, yeah. Montaigne is, is bothered by the fact that um, the graffiti that the French youth put up is so unrealistic. Um, and, and it makes – Perhaps women who are, are, are unaccustomed to actual male genitalia expect something different. He says, uh, what great harm is done by those graffiti of enormous genitals which boys scatter over the corridors and staircases of our royal palaces? From them arise a cruel misunderstanding of our natural capacities. Who knows whether that explains why Plato decreed, following the practice of other states with sound institutions, that both men and women, old and young, should appear naked before each other during exercises in the gymnasia. Those Indian and women who see their men in the nude have at least cooled off their visual senses. So, you know, it's really problematic that boys are drawing these extraordinarily large penises all over the place because it really sets women up to think, wow, all penises must be like this. Um, (laughs) I just, I personally can't wait to see a crudely drawn penis. Um, uh, But that, that gets back to, uh, all right. So that's me being a a little bit silly, but that gets back to Montaigne's claims for, uh, honesty. Yeah. And to that, I found the passage I was thinking of. Um, and can uh, can I interrupt you with another passage first? Please do. Okay. I'm sorry. Thinking about his honesty and his claims for honesty, what he really sort of wants is self-knowledge. And and this seems to me to be a platonic thing. The more you know yourself, the better. Uh, He, he's talking about why he's talking about 
such, I guess, outre material. And he says, God grant that my excessive license may draw men nowadays to be free, rising above those cowardly counterfeit virtues which are born of our imperfections, and also grant that I may draw them to the pinnacle of reason at the expense of my own lack of moderation. If you are to tell of a vice of yours, you must first see it and study it. Those who conceal it from others usually do so from themselves as well. They hold that it is not sufficiently hidden if they can see it, so they disguise it and steal it from their own moral awareness. What he seems to be arguing there is that, okay, if you really want to know yourself, know who you are, and know what it means to be you, you gotta let it all out so mm-hmm. that you can, you can acknowledge it. The worst thing you can do is hide yourself from yourself. And, and that gets back to what I think art's claim was. Sometimes, all right, art was, was really sort of creeped out by the fact that the mind goes where it's going to go, regardless of how you can rein it in. But what Montaigne seems to be arguing here is that, well, there's no control over this. Sometimes we do things thoughtlessly or or without cognition. The way to combat the negative effects of that, and there are negative effects, is to step back for a second, admit to ourselves who we are, and then sort of go forth with that. Now, I think there can be a kind of false candor or a fake candor Mm -hmm. that's sort of constructed to um, admit these things, to let yourself off the hook. Uh, And and perhaps Montaigne is is participating in that. I I really don't know. I'd never met the guy. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking in some ways sort of how I, I don't want to step into this, but to use a contemporary example, uh, the, after the sort of revelations about Louis C.K. came out, mm-hmm. um, the what were revelations or what were perhaps I, – I don't know. Um, but after that came out, there was a lot of critique of his stand-up as being – manufactured in a way to mitigate those things yeah to to say that um well okay i'm a horrible human being but i'm admitting to myself that i'm a horrible human being but if it's a manufacturing it's not the admitting i think what montaigne is getting at here is a kind of true recognition and cognition of all of your faults as well as all of your 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 achievements to sort of figure out okay this is what it means to be human in in a, a much more complicated way than just sculpting your vices into a performance yeah 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 absolutely um yeah that's I, that's that's far deeper than the uh <laughs> than the passage I, I, I found that I, that I was thinking of. But I think it at least illustrates another direction that Montaigne's coming at the candor issue. Yeah, um, yeah. I think another argument that he's making, I suppose, about it. Um, but he go says, to that passage. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he says here, uh, but let us come to my subject. What has the act of generation so natural, so necessary, and so just done to men to be a thing not to be spoken of without blushing and to be excluded from all serious and moderate discourse? We boldly pronounce kill, 
rob, betray, and that we dare only to do betwixt the teeth. Is it to say, the less we expend in words, we pay, we, we may pay so much more in thinking? For it is certain that the words least in use, most seldom written, and best kept in, are the best and most generally known. Um, and I, I really, I really love that passage because I think he's coming at the, uh, I think this is another sort of, uh, like I said, it's, I think it's a less profound argument for the candor thing, but I think he's saying like, look, we talk all the time about things that are unpleasant about things that should be embarrassing and that we should, that should make us blush things like robbery and, and betrayal and killing. That should be what we're embarrassed about as people. But we're not. We speak proudly and openly about that stuff. But the moment we start talking about something that we do to enjoy each other, we get all bashful. Um, and I, I think I thought that was interesting because that's a that's an argument that people. I mean, that's something we still talk about today. I mean, I think you said we we were talking in the kind of the previous chats that you mentioned, like that was kind of Howard Stern's shtick <laughs> for a while in the nineties. Yeah, like yeah. This, this kind of like pointing out that kind of hypocrisy. And I, I thought it was interesting that Montaigne was. You know, even uh, way back when, was making the same sort of the same sort of argument for candor from this. Like, look, we, we already like you know the cat's out of the bag on all this awful stuff. Why can't we be similarly open about something that we you know that is actually good in the world? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And the I and I think Matt in in the previous discussions was was really sort of right. I, I would view Howard Stern as someone who's sculpting his vices into mm-hmm. a performance. And Matt really sort of wanted to argue that Montaigne is not sculpting. There's something about this in the essay or the attempt that's just sort of like, here's something I do that fascinates me. Let me write about it. Yeah. I mean, in, in experience or, or in on experience, he gives uh, detailed information about when uh, you should have your bowel movements and why that is the perfect time. <laughs> right. That seems to come not necessarily from scatological information as comedic leveling, but rather here is my advice to the world. Mm-hmm. Here's how it functions for me. Take what you will. Um yeah, so I I think it's kind of interesting to get into the sort of if he's talking about this as a human thing, he's he's also he's addressing it in gendered terms, but he's also being very very open about the genders. Um okay, I this is he he's he's giving this example of why we should sort of be open to the idea of sexual desire um, or or at least open to the experiences of women. So he says, there was that plea lodged in Catalonia by a wife as plaintiff against her husband's excessive assiduous lovemaking. Not, I think, because she was actually troubled by it. Okay, that's where his... Um, Sort of misogyny is coming in, but rather to have a pretext for pruning back and curbing the authority of husbands over their wives, even in the very deed which forms the basic act of marriage, and also to show that the nagging and spitefulness of wives extend over the marriage bed and trample under the under heel the sweet delight of Venus. Her husband, 
a really depraved brute of a fellow made the rejoinder that even on days of abstinence, he could not manage with less than 10 times. Okay. So on the one hand, he's opening this up. Well, you know, women will do anything to get power in a marriage. On the other hand, this guy really, I mean, that's nuts. Yeah. Um, whereupon intervened the notable judgment of the Queen of Aragon after mature deliberation in her council, that good queen wishing to provide for all time an example of the moderation required in a proper marriage and a measuring rod for temperance, ordained that it is necessary to limit and restrict intercourse to six times a day, sacrificing much of women's needs and surrendering many of their desires in order to establish a scale which would be unexacting and therefore durable and unchanging, at which the doctor exclaimed, if that is the rate assessed by a reasoned moral reformation, what must be the lusts and the appetites of women? Just think of the disparity of judgments on our appetites. Solon, the head of the school of lawgivers, with the aim of avoiding failure, sets the rate for such conjugal intimacy at three times a month. We believe all that and teach all that, and then we go and assign sexual restraint to women as something peculiarly theirs, under pain of punishments of the utmost severity. No passion is more urgent than this one, yet our will is that they alone should resist it, not simply as a vice with its true dimensions, but as an abomination and a curse worse than impiety and parricide. Meanwhile, we men can give way to it without blame or reproach. Um, what he's sort of pointing to there is the way that this misogynistic discourse puts all the blame on women. Um... They're too horny, and they can't control themselves. Yeah. Well, okay, which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's what I find kind of fascinating about this essay is that, okay, he's not exactly what we would call woke Montaigne. Right. But he is pointing to the logical inconsistency – of a lot of these misogynistic attitudes. And that's what I, what I think is really sort of worth it in this essay. Um, what he, I think you pointed it, pointed it out rightly. What he seems to be arguing for is a kind of open marriage, mm -hmm. a, a sort of polyamory that views the, the institution of marriage itself as pragmatic, Pragmatic and practical. Yeah, like a, a grounding institution. Yeah. yeah. But one which does not account for all of the the proclivities that we might have as humans, male and female. And while I can't necessarily say that that's something that I could go through with, it seems to be – Admirable, or it seems to me admirable that he can think in that way. Yeah, I think so. I think that, that uh, puts, a, puts a nice a nice bow on uh, on on some on some lines of Virgil. Yeah, <laughs> um, small penises and all. Yeah. So let's. <laughs> so I, I, I suppose let's move to uh, on physiognomy and his kinds of. Um, interest there in what exactly is going on in in the wars in France. And yeah. did you want to take sort of five seconds to, to talk one more time 
I think we addressed this before, but if you want to get get everyone up to speed about yeah. what exactly was going on in the religious wars uh, at that point, right? So I I believe at the at the time Montaigne is writing this sort of this third batch of essays. Um, this you know it's it's he's he's more advanced in life. It's I believe in the fifteen seventies. I want to say. Um, and yeah, I think he claims to be 56 at this point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I meant like the, the, the decade that he's writing in. Um, yeah, I, I – Oh, but right from his birthday. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so at, at this point, we've had, you know, what, 60 years? You know, two, so basically two, two generations of Reformation has been sort of roiling through Europe. It's uh, – you've had sort of the settlement of Augsburg in the Holy Roman Empire has kind of – Help things settle down over there, but in in France, though, and something to remember about this early stage of the Reformation is that this is really before this is before the idea that that you would be a Protestant or a Catholic. This is actually Europe is undergoing, and France in particular is undergoing the process by which those identities are formed and crystallize, and. How they are formed and how they crystallize are largely through mass violence. Um, because what you have happening in France at this time, the, remember that the struggle in the Reformation to begin with was not splitting off. It was reforming, literally. It was the idea that something has gone wrong with the one universal holy church. I know how we can fix it, that I, being variously Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, what have you. I know how to fix it. So all we need to do to ensure our, the, the, the salvation of our immortal souls is to start doing church the way I think it should be done, or rather the Bible says it should be done, which I have helpfully interpreted for you. Um, so, so, so a fighting of totalitarianism with totalitarianism. Essentially, yes, but, but really fought out in a kind of almost lawyerly fashion through these arguments and counter-arguments, except, of course, when – <laughs> when push comes to shove and and you have things becoming enforced and the the piece of augsburg kind of set the stage for this more forceful this more directly violent reformation because it established the doctrine of uh oh i, f- I forget the latin motto for it but the 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 doctrine was essentially as the prince decides so the realm abides so that rather than basically so all these arguments would be hashed out, but whoever is in charge of whatever district you're in, be they a, a bishop or a, a count elector or you know whatever the various the various uh, independent polities in this checkerboard of the uh, the Holy Roman Empire in Central Europe at the time, whatever he decides, that's what the church in that area will be. So that's what everyone has to go to. And so, of course, in order to accomplish that, all these various you know lords and feudal magnates and whatever, you're you're going to have to go in and rough up the priests who don't go along with your Lutheran vision, or rough up the priests who think that the church should be reformed and don't want to go back to following the Roman uh, Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, and that's kind of setting the stage in France right now. France is in this foment, in large a lot of it being fueled by John Calvin, who was a Frenchman. Um, he's most associated with sort of Switzerland and Geneva because that's where he, after getting kicked out of France, that's where he set himself up. And it's, it's interesting that sort of Calvin has this reputation of being like the tyrant of Geneva and that he sort of set up a theocracy and whatnot. But the thing to remember is that he was invited there. 
he was a famous guy who seemed to have very clear ideas on what God wanted from them. You know, here, here's a guy who seems to understand what God wants in a church. Let's invite him here and he can help us. Um, which he then of sort, you know, made into this kind of theocratic uh, situation. But anyway, so John Calvin's writing in French. A lot of his, uh, his ideas are permeating into France. And what's going on is that a lot of the sort of the, the initial – the you know, we sort of have this idea, especially in France, of Protestantism being a bottom-up kind of thing that they were sort of you know secret uh, cells of Protestants that were being you know crushed by the by the you know the the Catholic hierarchy. But to begin with, it was very much a it was very much an upper class phenomenon because you know who had the time to sit around and read theological treatises? It was the upper right. class. It was people like Montaigne. Um, so that's where a lot of this uh, a lot of the support started coming in. Um, and so, you know, once you have like a, you know, some big landed magnate decides he wants to support Protestantism and he has all, you know, all the churches in his region, like, Oh, Hey, you guys, you should start doing this. That starts getting the common people involved a little more, but eventually, you know, it, it comes to the head because you were right. It was that totalitarianism versus totalitarianism. Who is going to be in charge of the church in France? You right. Know, because everyone was still at this point, everyone was still convinced that there was just one church. No one was breaking off of anything. So this is the this is the sort of tinderbox situation going on. It really explodes in the 1570s with an event called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which was which was occasioned by you know it's 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 it's, it's very complicated to go into. I think I might have been in an earlier earlier episode, but essentially a a very famous um, Protestant uh, high muckety muck and admiral. Um, dared show up to a big royal wedding in Paris and sort of making himself um, vulnerable to arrest or otherwise assassination by uh, rival partisans, which he was then assassinated. And so the Protestant communities, and, and, and this is really when you first have a sense of Protestant communities, because these were now people who held Protestant opinions felt like they were under attack from all the other people around them. That's a powerful bonding kind of force. That's a powerful way to crystallize an identity. Um, and sadly, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was a an extreme bloodletting on the part of what we might call traditionalist Christians against these Protestants who they felt were somehow involved in a kind of scheme to overturn everything. So it was you know kind of fifth columnists. We have to purge them. And that just kicked off this intense cycle of massacre and counter-massacre, uh, where instead of it being this sort of war of ideas fought out among pamphlets being circulated, it literally became a war of fire and steel, and places were won over to this church or that through fire and steel. Um, yeah, and this is the situation that we're in in France at the time. Yeah, And... and- that that's what's sort of fascinating is that Montaigne has a he's throughout on physiognomy he's doing his best to maintain a kind of nonpartisan stance. It's not exactly neutral, right? Um, neutrality means that you haven't picked a side, and he has picked a side. He's he's conscientious here in, in terms of okay, this is what I truly believe is the right way to go, and the right way to go for Montaigne is is ninety nine percent pragmatic center way. But what he points out is the way that his 
pragmatism is viewed as partisanship by each side. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, oh gosh, where where do, do, well, do. there's a part in yeah. particular that I, that's not necessarily uh, about that, but uh, about his analysis of the rebellion itself. And on the idea of reformation, he says, I often doubt whether among all those who engage in such disorders, there's ever been found one man who was so feeble of understanding that he actually let himself be convinced that he was advancing towards reformation by way of the ultimate in deformation, that he was ensuring his salvation by means of the most explicit causes we know of most certain damnation, or that by overthrowing the Constitution, the authorities and the laws under the tutelage of which God has placed him, and by the dismembering of his motherland, tossing parts of her to be gnawed by her ancient foes, filling brotherly hearts with parasite, parasitical hatreds, and summoning up devils and the furies to help him, he can somehow bring succor to the most holy loveliness and justice of God's words. Ambition, greed, cruelty, revenge do not have enough natural violence on their own, so let us light the match and stir the fire under their glorious pretext of justice and devotion. Mm -hmm. No worse state of affairs can be imagined than one in which wickedness becomes lawful, donning by leave of the magistrate the mantle of authority. Um, yeah, under the the rubric of reformation of purity uh, we have absolute destruction yeah yeah and that that sort of gets at my own animus for or animosity towards purity anytime anyone begins talking about purity maybe it's because i'm 40 years old i don't know i i'm an old <laughs> man now but anyone it, it seems i i think roberto bolaño in in one of his stories writes about how um purity is an adolescent obsession it's something 14 year olds want mm -hmm. and um for me it sort of seems the same thing and that speaks to the heart of Montaigne's project and, and maybe why I'm kind of sympathetical with it mm -hmm. is uh, we're a mess. Yeah. To be human is to be a mess. There's no such thing as purity. And when you're purifying yourself, you're sort of dismembering yourself. You're cutting yourself off from yeah. uh, your actual practices or according – cordoning them off as not part of yourself um you're making yourself something other than human and it's it's extraordinarily destructive and i can we can see it in the politics of our own day mm -hmm. yeah I, I i'm i'm very much i'm very much with you i've i've determined that uh that's a this the pursuit of purity and the idea of purity is uh it's it's a, it's a mugs game it's no good no, it's fascism. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was going to yeah, say, I, like, I'll, I, I'll yeah. throw down. It's it's fascist. I, I once got into it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I once got into it in the the comments on a BBC article on Twitter, where I was <laughs> I was I was basically like, you know, e explaining to some racist prick that uh, you know the vaunted racial purity of the, it was it was it was some kind of like archaeological find about Vikings, and of course, anytime Vikings come up, some fascist prick's going to get involved. Um, but I was kind of explaining like, nah, bruh, like the, whatever, whatever imagined racial purity you think existed then is absolutely never happened. And it certainly isn't around now. Everyone has been mixing since every time everywhere. It's, there's no such thing as purity. 
It's a, it's no no one needs to even worry about it. And then well, he, okay, yeah, I, it was it, it was fruitless to argue it, but I just couldn't let that lie because just, who, who cares? Who cares? I'll uh, I'll go back to what I I took an anthropology class in uh, my freshman year, and I had this great professor who was kind of like a lunatic. He he was one of those old guy lunatics, but he was a fascinating lunatic, and um, he 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 said. You know, bluntly, it was a nine o'clock class. Maybe he was just trying to wake us up, but I think he had a point. Uh, we were talking about um, inter inter mixing between uh, cultures, and he said, "Look, I'll be honest with you. Uh, from all the reading I've done in this field since I've been twenty, um, there's what I like to call the fuck to fight ratio, <laughs> and nine times out of ten it's fuck and that one time out of 10 it's fight um the there's more of a chance that groups are going to intermingle and mix than there is that they're going to sort of fight it out for some kind of like purity cause right like have some sort of uh yes this is i have this opposition Um, yeah yeah oh but but to bring it back to montaigne i um (laughs) uh um but yeah, this is sort of this mention of what the you know what this kind of what this kind of struggle inflicts upon the very body it's attempting to purify uh, as is a question that uh, Montaigne is interested in, and he also drops some some uh, some biographical uh, sort of updates on how how his estate has been faring in all yeah. of this, where he writes. I was writing this about the time when a great load of our intestine troubles for several months lay with all its weight upon me. I had the enemy at my door on one side and the freebooters, worse enemies, on the other. Freebooters being kind of uh, opportunistic bandits in this, you know, times of chaos. And underwent all sorts of military injuries all at once. A monstrous war. Other wars are bent against strangers, this against itself, destroying itself with its own poison. It is of so malignant and ruinous a nature that it ruins itself with the rest, and with its own rage mangles and tears itself to pieces. We more often see it dissolve of itself than through scarcity of any necessary thing or by force of the enemy. All discipline evades it. It comes to compose sedition and is itself full of it, would chastise disobedience and is itself the example and employed for the defense of the laws, rebels against its own. What a condition we are in. Our physic makes us sick. And I think that's powerful because he's, he's bemoaning the... And it, it really can cut both ways. I, I read it mostly as bemoaning the official response to what began basically as a kind of self-defense move by this emerging conscience, consciously Protestant community. Um, by the state and by official organs um, that, you know, in opposing sedition, it comes to compose sedition, you know, in, in, in employed for the defense of the laws that rebels against its own. And yet at the same time, I think that's a charge you can, that can be leveled at these Protestants, you know, who, who are supposed are ostensibly fighting for a kind of a, a higher society, a more godly society as they see it. And, and they're going about it in, in the way of just, you know, fire and blood and rapine and, and theft. Um that it's 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 the kind of uh, it's the kind of situation I, I guess the the it's almost I hate to say this because it sounds very glib but it's the kind of situation that's almost made for a man like Montaigne mm. um, and not so much standing aloof from it but in navigating it with that kind of 
Oh, rather, at least being concerned that he has the compass to navigate it, and he's and he's drawing yeah. on the humanist, the, on on the, the humanist sources and his own observation, his own sort of uh, epistemology that he's developing. Yeah, in order to and, navigate it, and and that's what like that's what I think is kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I I believe. Matt addressed some of the problems he had with the church or or he almost got into trouble with the church though he they they sort of negotiated their way out of that but one of the things he does is say I will navigate this to the best of my ability but at a certain point eh. uh he says <laughs> Besides, by my nature, I'm neither very suspicious nor distrustful, and that is the truth. I have a strong tendency to find justifications and the kindest interpretation. I judge men according to the common order of nature. I do not believe in perverted and disnatured tendencies any more than important portents and miracles, unless I'm forced to do so by some major piece of evidence. So, you know, supernatural shit, maybe it's there. I don't know. If I see it, yeah, sure. I am, moreover, a man inclined to trust myself to fortune and to allow myself to dash into her arms. Up to the present, I have had more reason to congratulate myself on that than to pity myself, and I have found fortune both better informed and better disposed towards my affairs than I am. There have been a few deeds in my life, the handling of which could rightly be called difficult, or, if you wish, wise." Allow even a third of those to be due to me, but two-thirds certainly were abundantly to her. Chance dictates. Um, the, the circumstances dictate, and you maneuver according to the circumstances. This sounds close to something like chaos theory, um, which is not the, you know... Wow, a hurricane because a butterfly <laughs> flapped its wings. No, 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 no. Chaos theory is a mathematical principle, uh, claims that we can typically know certain kinds of broad parameters up to a point. Mm -hmm. But the maneuvers that happen within those parameters are unknowable. No. And those movements affect where those parameters will go eventually. So it's it's sort of like, look, there are certain ways that I can navigate what I can. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I just do my best. <laughs> but yeah, um, and I guess um, I guess speaking of uh, I guess of navigation, I, I don't know if it's too early to move on from on experience or did were there. Oh, well, there's there's one last thing that that I I would want to say is that yeah. it, it's his calling on fortune. Later, uh, he, yeah, yeah. he mitigates that by saying, "Well, heaven, okay, um, God has a plan. I can't see it. Yeah, you know, whatever." But it, it was that moment of fortune, chaos, chance. Um, he opens that up later. He'll say. You know, it's up to heaven what will happen, which is sort of like, okay, maybe there is a plan, but I can't see it. I can't know it. Right. But it's still that humility of saying, I can only do within my circumstances what I can do. Right. The right. rest is up to me. And right. and that really speaks to his uh, epistemology, which I think leads us into experience. Yeah. Yeah. So – I want to start out with on experience because he, I mean, he throws down uh, 
the claim at the very beginning. No desire is more natural than the desire for knowledge. We assay all the means that can lead us to it. When reason fails us, we make use of experience. And then he has a quote, by repeated practice and with examples showing the way, experience constructs an art. Experience is a weaker and less dignified means, but truth is so great a matter that we must not disdain any method which leads us to it. So what he's laying out from the beginning is that um, it's our own personal subjectivity which gets us to understand what exactly the world is. Mm -hmm. And um, it's that that we have to trust on rather than some sort of idealist uh, proposition. The induction uh, reason has so many forms that we do not know which to resort to. Experience has no fewer. The induction which we wish to draw from the likeness between events is unsure since they all show unlikenesses. When collating objects, no quality is so universal as diversity and variety. As the, the most explicit example of likeness, the Greeks, Latins, and we ourselves allude to that of eggs. Yet there was a man of Delphi who, among others, uh, there was a man of Delphi, among others, who recognized the signs of difference between eggs and never mistook one for another. When there were several hens, he could tell which egg came from which. Of itself, unlikeness obtrudes into anything we make. No art can achieve likeness. Um, the reason he seems to be interested in experience is because no experience is like any other experience. Yeah. Um, this, this is Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche, in essay after essay after essay, if you want to find where he really sort of writes about it, it's uh, Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. It's a, a very brief essay. But he lays out the claim that because concepts are so broad, they're ideological concepts, yeah. they eliminate the the significant differences between events, ideas, experiences, so on and so forth. Um, they're falsifications. Yeah. And what Nietzsche seems to be drawing from Montaigne – and, and Nietzsche read his Montaigne, Nietzsche read Emerson, Emerson read his Montaigne, is that there is no unifying truth to the universe. There's only the subjective experience. I don't think Montaigne goes that far. I think Montaigne wants to say there are certain parameters that past knowing can help us develop. Yeah. But Montaigne really does come down on the side of, look, everything is ultimately different. So to put everything together into a sameness is a falsification. So rely on your own experience. Yeah. It's – um well, 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 one might use that great boogie word, boogeyman word, postmodern. To describe mm -hmm. such a kind of uh, conception, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I was struck by reading it that it, it's it's staking out, or rather, he's, he's sort of carrying the flag for an earlier, an earlier philosophical position. That again, you, you'd be surprised. All of the uh, sorry to eh, sorry to kick around the fascists some more, but all these uh, you know, oh oh, I'm anti postmodern 
uh, dipshits with, uh, you know, Greek statues and their avatars and all that. <clears throat> talking about like, oh, well, Western civilization used to have concrete bases and stuff back in the Middle Ages. No, let me, it let me tell didn't. you something about, let me tell you about something about Middle, Middle Ages philosophy. There is a school called nominalism, buddy. And the nominalists rejected the idea of there being anything like abstract realities. There was no such thing as, they rejected Plat- Platonism essentially in the sense that they, they 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 held the view that anytime there's any sort of like collective or general noun um, that they call you know the the, no, the nomina the, the kind of a name that we have for things that's just because we decided enough things look similar enough that we'll use the same word for them but there isn't an actual unifying reality about them and yeah. I think Montaigne is sort of carrying that flag and and you're right and I think you know Emerson and Nietzsche will pick it up. And then, you know, they'll pick up that flag and, and wave it a little harder than Montaigne is willing to because he, he hedges himself by saying that, like, oh, yes, well, sometimes we have to rely on experience. I mean, it's not nearly as good as reason. No, let's not go crazy. <laughs> but well, you're, like, but you're right. He's staking out a pretty radical position that he's not quite – his, his, his reach extends his grasp as far as he's willing to go. Yeah, I mean, okay, and that gets – let me get on my high horse. That gets to my <laughs> other bugbear about, you know, all oh, these postmodernists and moral relativism and, uh, oh, you have no morals. No, just because you put your own your own expectations aside for a moment does not mean that you're not considering, thinking through – contemplating the ethical implications of action X, Y, or Z. It doesn't mean an absolute acceptance of all in this kind of totalizing way. What it means is often for the moment when observing or encountering something that's beyond your own epistemological or ontological framework, you give it the benefit of the doubt. That yeah. is extraordinarily different than saying, hey, man, it's okay to do that if, like, you know, things are cool. No. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this is not some kind of wishy-washy stupidity. In fact, I, I would argue that uh, it, it's a lot more strenuous in its intellectual activity than a kind of yes no binary you know what have you i'm sorry i i'm yeah. irritated by fox news <laughs> no no, no and i All think right. you're right like there there's well I, I think there's there's a kind of uh it's it's having the 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 it's having the wherewithal to admit with integrity the limits of your own possibility of your understanding yes there you go and and i think uh Pulling it into the the nominist and the the other sort of strains of philosophy that are going to this is 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 really sort of helpful. Um, okay, so there, there's the the Nietzschean epistemology, then um, there's the the sort of Emersonian individuality. Uh, this is sort of in this moment where he says, oh, "Well, th- this gets at both." He says, out of one subject, we make a thousand and sink into Epicurus infinitude of atoms by prol- proliferation and subdivision. 
Never did two men ever judge identically about anything, and it is impossible to find two opinions which are exactly alike, not only in different men, but in the same men at different times. I normally find matter for doubt in which the gloss has not condescended to touch upon. Like certain horses, I know which miss their footing on a level path. I stumble more easily on the flat. Okay, what he's talking about is glosses and sort of analyses of texts that are 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 attached to those texts mm-hmm. uh footnotes annotations so on and so forth um what strikes me here is the way that he comes so close to that whitmanian rereading of emerson so i contradict myself so what yeah yeah uh if you're going to be completely honest with yourself in in different circumstances you may think one thing and in a different circumstance or in another circumstance you may think the antithesis of that thing or react antithetically to the way that you assume you would react so i contradict myself okay fine um you know i i I had a teacher in high school who was a parent who told me once that you never think you will, you know, he was an intellectual. He was an extraordinarily intelligent guy. He was one of the best teachers I ever had. And he said, you never think that uh, you'll, you'll tell your child because I said so. But as soon as you have a child, you will discipline that child and your rationale will be because I said so. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I can see it happening now. Yeah. My son is one and a half. Uh, I know it will happen. Uh, I like to think of myself as yeah. someone who gives a reason for the things that he does, but – I know my son's capacities and I know at three, I will scream at him because I said so <laughs> go to bed. Why? Cause I said so. Yeah. Um, th- there are ways in which we contradict who and what we assume according to broad parameters we are, or we would do. And this goes back to Montaigne's humanism. We contradict ourselves that's Emerson. Mm-hmm. Emerson ripped it off. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a certain animus against Emerson. And I, he just he grates on me in, in certain circumstances, and uh, I just want to point out that Emerson, with his ideas of absolute originality, absolutely ripped off Montaigne. Okay, so to keep going forward. <laughs> Um, this again is another passage that could have come right out of Emerson. It is only mm-hmm. our individual weakness which makes us satisfied with what has been discovered by others or by ourselves in this hunt for knowledge. An abler man will not be satisfied with it. There's always room for a successor, yes, even for ourselves, and a different way to proceed. There's no end to our inquiries. Our end is in the next world. Emerson ripped that off. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> what, this is the difference between Emerson and Montaigne. Montaigne wants to – it sounds more positive in Montaigne. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like an admission that, look, um, when 
when you get satisfied by the thought of another, then you've sort of let your own guard down and and become something that you're not. Um, eventually, you'll figure out that that's not your knowledge. That's someone else's knowledge from his own experience. So gauge it on what you are, but also be open to the possibility that you will change your mind. Emerson has much more of an agonistic relationship with past writing where he wants to proclaim this kind of like absolute or totalitarian individualism where any kind of past writing which tells you something about who and what you are or that does it in a, a sort of fascinating or or intense way, a sublime way that gets at you know, something above and beyond how you could think, well, it's an insult to you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like this antagonistic sort of relationship to other writing, and Emerson has to keep writing his originality. When you look at his sources, the more he – and his source being Montaigne, the more Emerson um, insists on originality, the less original he looks. It's really kind of fascinating. That's what was so interesting to me about on experience. And and the other thing is the way that Montaigne tempers it. Because Montaigne keeps coming back to that platonic or – well, maybe not platonic, but Socratic ideal yeah. uh, of moderation. Just keep it in the middle road. Look, the extremes <laughs> on either side are going to get you into trouble – Always acknowledge that coming back to the middle road is probably going to be the healthiest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that might be a, a moment where we could sort of pull aside and say he's not exactly platonic, though he is Socratic. Mm-hmm. The, the, the platonic ideal is much more involved in sort of the abstract form of things. And Montaigne really has very little patience for the abstract form of things. He's much more interested in the concrete details and in the sort of everydayness of it all. Um, not to step back too far into on physiognomy, but one of the parts of on physiognomy is where he puts his own words into uh, Socrates' mouth. He sort of recycles some of the past essays uh, as to, to to put it into Socrates talking about how to live and how to die. Yeah. And the point that he's trying to make about Socrates or, or the point that he he sort of comes back to is that Socrates is not complicated. If you read uh, Plato's writing on Socrates, Socrates doesn't talk about complicated things in complicated ways. He talks about complicated things in extraordinarily simple ways, in very easy to understand ways. He's not trying to show off his learning in this kind of obfuscation. He's trying to bring thinking down to the level of experience. Mm-hmm. At, at least that's Montaigne's claim. And that's why I think he finds Socrates so interesting as opposed to Plato who through Socrates wants to sort of establish this world of forms. Right. Like sort of Plato kind of taking the pretense of being the fulfillment of the Socratic method and 
epistemology basically like you know play like yeah. okay socrates started this program i'm going to finish and see socrates pointed the way and i shall walk it for you you know when when really yeah like i montaigne is much more sympathetic to no let's go back to a guy who's pointing the way because maybe i want to walk my way <laughs> rather than plato's yeah and uh, i mean and that gets at okay this is another moment that is Nietzsche all over. Now, laws remain respected not because they are just, but because they are laws. That is the mystical basis of their authority. They have no other. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a throwaway line in Montaigne that becomes uh, um, a whole essay by Nietzsche on uh, the genealogy of morality. Uh, what Montaigne – okay, this is the difference between Montaigne and Nietzsche. Montaigne says – Laws are arbitrary. They're just customs. Uh, pragmatically, the best thing to do is to go along with them to the degree that you can. What laws you think you can't abide by, perhaps break them privately, but put on a good show, would you? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about survival, I think, in some ways. And Nietzsche, from his acknowledgement that all laws are – well, in his terms, morality from mores. There, this transcendental morality is nothing but custom. So break it all. Yeah, yeah. Montaigne would say, that's stupid. Have a glass of wine. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like there's this tempering in Montaigne that I really sort of admire. Uh, it, it, it can be problematic because there are certain points at which you want to say that unjust laws made unjustly should be altered and changed. And there's not much in Montaigne which would allow you to articulate that. But the Nietzschean Ubermensch ideal. I mean, it's an adolescent fantasy. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's, I, I realized you were just talking. I was, I was reminded to, to bring it down to the level of uh, dumbness, which I'm accustomed to. Um, <laughs> I was reminded of one of my favorite internet memes I've ever seen in my life, uh, where it was like two panels. And on the one side, it said, uh, it said something like, uh, you know, the universe is meaningless, nothing matters. And it was like a, a, a all blacks and, and whites and some, some dreary looking fellow looking down and serious and very Nietzschean. And the other mm. panel was on the other side with a, a bright and cheery guy in sunglasses giving a mighty thumbs up. And it said, the universe is meaningless, nothing matters. <laughs> and there you go. And yeah, and I, I very much like, God, I just, I loved it. And yeah, you have Nietzsche versus Montaigne. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And, uh, well, it's, I, I think it's also interesting the time periods in which they lived. Uh, Montaigne's situation was one of extreme external chaos. Nietzsche's was one of relative calm. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's, that speaks to, well, their experiences and to their reactions to this. Um, there, there are other moments, uh, that, that remind me of certain other writers. Uh, one is um, Joseph Conrad in this weird, weird way. Uh, he writes about the way that he, he's, he's bothered by law, 
because of the way it seems to be abstractly written and overly complicated. Mm-hmm. And but that opens up this idea of how do you know what's right and wrong? Um, Conrad in his his writing in the early part of his writing when he was an impressionist was using impressionism like the idea that the text could make you feel something Mm -hmm. as a kind of moral force which is why heart of darkness is so weird uh marlo cannot transmit the subjective truth of his experiences of what sound to me like ptsd so yeah. he has to work circuitously. He can't tie up his experiences in the Congo in a neat, nice little bow for the other members of that ship that he's talking to. So he has to tell them his feeling about the things. And there are moments where Montaigne seems to um, sort of similarly suggest that there's this way in which he wants to say that experience itself is the feeling of, of what is right or wrong. And that I thought was really sort of, it's interesting and it's problematic because if feeling is what makes something ethical or unethical, then how do you transmit that? Mm -hmm. How, how do you, you know that? Um, but there's another, you know, I guess we're sort of rounding out on experience, but there's another moment that I thought was really, really interesting. Um, he, he writes about learning how to suffer mm-hmm. and he writes about, you know, his problems with kidney stones. And he essentially sort of says that the cure is often worse than the symptom so part of what you have to do with an illness is learn how to deal with it. Yeah. And he he has a section on scabies, um, which I thought was really sort of interesting. <laughs> I cannot recall ever having had scabies, but scratching is one of the most delightful of nature's bounties, and it is always ready to hand. But its neighbor, inconveniently close, is regret for having done it. I mainly practice it on my ears, which from time to time itch inside. Okay, it's a bizarre throwaway line, but it reminded me so much of the Samuel Beckett short story, The End. Mm-hmm. Um, Beckett, at, at this point of his, in, in his career, was uh, waging war with logic. Uh, he... he he viewed logic as a useful pragmatic tool up to a point, but there was no transcendence to it. So uh, after World War II, he started writing these first short stories and then novels that move by non sequitur. Like the, the whole point of a non sequitur is that it's a leap in logic and that it is literally illogical. Right. It, it doesn't follow. Um, so – in Beckett's writing, the non sequitur signals this move that that suggests that the nature of the universe is absolutely chaotic. And it, it was kind of stunning to me because this particular passage of description of scratching scabies in Montaigne sounded so much 
like this passage of Beckett in the end. This, mm-hmm. this, by the way, is one of my favorite short stories of all time. And uh, I'm going to risk a lawsuit by, by uh, sort of reciting a passage. I don't have anything that you could take. So if you want to sue me, you'll get nothing. <laughs> all right. So here goes. Uh, it, 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 the, the, the narrator in the end is a homeless person who just moves from point to point to point to point to point chaotically with no real understanding. And so he's, he's describing, um, essentially his occupation of begging. Uh, you should never wear gloves either. There were gutter snipes who swept away all that I had earned under cover of giving me a coin. It was to buy sweets. I unbutton my trousers discreetly to scratch myself. I scratched myself in an upward direction with four nails. I pulled on the hairs to get relief. It passed the time. Time flew when I scratched myself. Real scratching is superior to masturbation, in my opinion. One can masturbate up to the age of 70 and even beyond, but in the end, it becomes a mere habit. Whereas to scratch myself properly, I would have needed a dozen hands. I itched all over on the privates in the bush, up to the navel, under the arms, in the arse, and then patches of eczema and psoriasis that I could set raging merely by thinking of them. It was in the arse I had the most pleasure. I stuck my forefinger up to the knuckle. Later, if I had to shit, the pain was atrocious. But I hardly shot anymore. Now and then a flying machine flew by sluggishly, it seemed to me. Okay, the reason I wanted to recite that is because, one, it, it reminded me of Montaigne talking about the pleasure of scratching uh, while you have scabies. But it also reminded me of the weird fascination that Montaigne has for all things physical. And, and this point that he keeps making about how we shouldn't disabuse the physical, we shouldn't cut ourselves off from the physical. And he has some, some brilliant passages in, in all three essays that we're talking about tonight on not cutting yourself off from pleasure. To, to deny yourself pleasure is to deny yourself, I think, what he thinks would be part of the soul. Yeah. We weren't put here just to suffer. There are these things that we can do. Why not do them in moderation? Right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's what he comes down to. Let's be honest. Let's be frank. But let's be moderate. Let's be not contained, but perhaps... And, and not controlled, but let's manage these things. And, and, and that's what I think is really sort of fascinating about this. Yeah, I, I, if I if I had to sort of, uh, well, we can think of a metaphor with this sort of notion to uh, your life experience is less like regimented rows of a plowed field and more like a gently tended garden. Uh, perhaps, yeah. Like it's it's within yeah, bounds. Yeah. It's but it has its own it has its own wooliness to it, its own wildness to it. Um, like uh, it's it is not regimented, but it is contained. I, I think actually, yeah. When we the, our, our first attempt at this, I, I mentioned Epicurus, and I'm glad it actually came up in one of the quotations he read. That uh, he mentioned him there, and this is I think I think Montaigne is reaching for the Epicurean ideal, and not in the sense of the how we use the term colloquially today, meaning, uh, you know, someone who enjoys food a lot, but rather the, the specific classical tradition that posited as a kind of a reaction to the, the philosophical hedonists who argued for always pursuing pleasure at all times. Whereas Epicurus and his followers were like, look, that's going to lead you into trouble instantly. How about you take a wider expansive view of, you know, what your whole life is like 
and choose wisely how to enjoy that. But keep in mind the enjoyment. Um, yeah. 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 And, and, and that's what I think I, I found most refreshing about Montaigne. It, it, it's an epistemology dependent on doubt, but not so dependent that it allows for certain kinds of <laughs> extraordinarily assholeish behaviors. Um, it's one that that remains open to experience, but not so open that some kind of um, management is obliterated. It's one that admits that who we are is often beyond us, but we can catalog that, know it to a certain degree, and not contain it or master it, but work with it. Uh, it's 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 a much more kind way of mm-hmm. thinking about who we are, and, and despite how troubling, and I mean really troubling, some of the essays were that I, I think we talked about last time. Um, I. I really had a good time reading this. It got to be a little bit of a slog. Yeah. Uh, to be completely <laughs> honest, it's a very heavy book. Yeah. And Matt, I think, was right. But this is kind of, um, I, I think, in our aborted episode, you'd mentioned that this was really sort of a bathroom reader. And yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of an intellectual bathroom reader. It's something that I want to come back to in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I I'll, think it's. I'll give it a while. Something. It's yeah. It's, it's like when I. Uh, I don't know. It's like when I got my undergrad degree. I was like, you know what? I could see myself going to school again, but not for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I. I'm not dismissing this text. It's something I want to dip back into. Yeah. And I think as I lapse into old age, it might be something that I sort of keep on the bedside table. Yeah. It's it's not always the best, but it's full of a pithy saying or a solid three to five pages here and there that puts – the chaos of existence into perspective in a way that will allow me to sleep better. Yeah. And I think that's something <laughs> that, that Montaigne would approve of. And what more could you ask of in a bedside book than that? Yeah. yeah. All right. So you know what? We have read Montaigne mm-hmm. cover to cover. Cover to cover, baby. I feel like I've accomplished something. Uh, our next episode is going to be the beginning of Don Quixote. Yeah. Uh, I am so looking forward to that. I, yes, it is. Uh, this is going to be terrific. And, and there's a little bit of a backstory to it, which I, I think we'll save for that episode. We can, we can discuss our history with the text and our history with each other with the text <laughs> uh, when, when, uh, when we record that one. But, but suffice to say, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Uh, I I love Don Quixote. Okay, so I, I guess that's enough. Uh, rate and review on iTunes if you feel like. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can find us both on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and check out the blog, uh, thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.blog. 
uh, I've been updating it a, a little bit more frequently to yeah. uh, mo- most recently to sort of give a sense of how we're taking on the the Western canon as a whole, just sort of the game plan for how we're planning to move forward because we switched a couple of things around just logistically. Right. But yeah, uh, yeah I think that, that if anyone's interested about how exactly we're sort of systematizing this, that that – has the the best description. So. And uh, I would like to go ahead and make an, an on-air pledge to actually contribute to this blog. I <laughs> fully intend to because I love I love writing. I, I, I love writing and I have not done it really. I haven't written anything like any kind of long form since uh, grad school, like four years ago. So I really want to dip back in. And here's my pledge to you, the listeners, and to you, Claude. And the listeners can hold me accountable. I am going to contribute to this to this endeavor uh yes <laughs> but with with that yes uh I, like claude said rate and review on itunes and uh yeah guys start reading don quixote all right well uh i guess we'll i'll talk to you in about a month daniel uh we'll see how far we can get through don quixote <laughs> sounds great man talk to you soon all right take care